Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. The story we hear this morning of the Magi, or the wise men, that very first epiphany, is a wonderful and a rich story. But as I've said before about different elements of the Christmas and now Epiphany story, unfortunately, these Bible stories have, for most people, been reduced in our minds to something simple or cartoon-like. This story has been reduced in most of our minds, I think, to something like Wise men on camels calmly but confidently follow a star which rests above the stable where little Lord Jesus is asleep on the hay. They take their place among the cattle and the sheep and they present their gifts. Now, in pointing out the problems with that oversimplification of the story, I don't mean to be a spoil sport. I enjoy collecting nativity sets from around the world, and I have 30 or 40 of them. Many of them are whimsical. None of them are historically accurate, and all of them are lots of fun. And I love the annual Christmas or Epiphany pageant with all the adorable cotton ball sheep and reluctant angels. And I got a big kick out of a meme that a friend of mine sent me this year on Christmas Day showing an ancient portrayal of the three kings having just presented their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and one of the kings saying, now, just to be perfectly clear, these gifts are for your birthday and Christmas. So there's no problem, I think, with our culture's way of portraying that first epiphany insofar as it goes. The problem is if we leave that oversimplification there. If we don't at least occasionally move beyond the hallmark card version of the story and remind ourselves of the story the way it's presented in the Bible. The reason I say it's important to do that is that we human beings have a tendency to romanticize our history. We have a tendency to romanticize our past. We have a tendency to recall and retell only those select parts that we choose to recall and retell. And we do that as individuals, we do that as families, we do that as a church, and we do that as a nation. And the problem with that selective memory is that when we encounter conflict, when we encounter stress or trouble in the present, and if our our main frame of reference is a romanticized past with all the ugly, stressful, difficult parts edited out, then we can fall into discouragement we can fall into discouragement because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that present conditions are somehow worse than the way things once were. And the thought that present conditions are worse than past conditions is only true if we are comparing the cold reality of the present 
to a carefully curated characterization of the past. And so once again this morning, it's good to remember that as opposed to the cultural portrayal of Christmas as the hap, hap, happiest time of the year, the actual biblical story is more like our actual lives. Remember, that first Christmas was full of stressful, forced travel far away from home while nine months pregnant and not being able to find a decent room for the night because of crowds having to stay the night in a shed and having to use a feeding trough as your newborn's first crib. And yet, it is that story of It is that story that we are reminded that God enters in. It is that story where we are reminded of Emmanuel, God with us, not in some separate, ethereal way, but in the real, messy stuff of real life. And now we get to the epiphany story. I think that at least we can draw three quick lessons from this epiphany story that are applicable to our everyday lives. And the first one has to do with the wise men themselves. We don't know exactly where these wise men were from. We're just told they're from the east. But wherever it was that they were from, presumably it was a a far distance away. They had to come a long way to get to the city of Jerusalem. They've left their homes. They've left what was familiar to them. They've left familiar surroundings they've left what they knew. Something has pointed or prompted them to leave what they know and to go someplace else. In this case, it's astronomy. It's the reading of the stars. It has pointed or prompted them to leave their familiar surroundings and ask questions like where? Where is the one born king of the Jews? And that is where this story of Epiphany starts. Something is drawing or prompting these wise men and the wise part of us to God as Emmanuel. Something is prompting us to leave what is familiar and look for God incarnate, God among us, God made real. God made flesh. Something is prompting us to leave behind the familiar and go to our Jerusalem and ask the question, where? Where is the child born king of the Jews? Is their specific question, but really the question is more broad. Where can we find Emmanuel? Where can we find Jesus? Where can I find God? What's being said is, I've observed things in life that are pointing me to something else, and I want to know where it is. So from the very start of this epiphany story, there is a movement away from the familiar into the mystery of God as Emmanuel, God made flesh, God incarnate. The second movement or lesson I think we can draw from this story has to do with the wise men having found God made man and what it does to them and what it does to others. 
For the wise men, finding God in Jesus triggers for them emotions and behaviors of joy and generosity. But God incarnate, God made real, triggers for other people emotions and behaviors of fear and turmoil and sabotage. We hear this. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened in all Jerusalem with him. Calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and they tell him what's prophesied. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may also go and pay him homage. So the wise men go, and when they get there and they see Jesus and Mary, they are overwhelmed with joy. They kneel down, and they open their treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. That has triggered emotions and behaviors of joy and generosity. But upon hearing the birth of Jesus, King Herod is frightened. Now, why would King Herod be frightened? Remember what the Magi were asking? Where is the king of the Jews? And what is Herod? King. King Herod did not like any threats, perceived or real, to his power. And as we read a little later in chapter 2 of Matthew, we find out the real reason that Herod wants to know the exact date and location of Jesus. The real reason he wants to find out is not to pay him his respects. Rather, we read this. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, went into a furious rage and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were under two years of age. Every twelfth day of Christmas, Every January 6th, we're reminded in this story in the Gospel of Matthew of a conniving, despotic politician trying to hold on to power, even to the point of violence. And every 12th day of Christmas, we are invited to have our own spiritual epiphany and realize that the very minute, the very moment, that we put God at the center of our life, the very minute that we make the Lord God instead of some small g God, the driving power in our life or in our church, then the things that have had that place in our heart will object. Things and people do not surrender power quietly. Finding God, making God central, brings joy and generosity, and it triggers fear, sabotage, and turmoil. And finally, one last point. There's an important part of the Epiphany story that happens at the very end of the story. And it's the fact that the wise men go home by a different road. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another route. I think we could start a new custom in churches 
that on the day, on the Sunday that we hear this gospel read, that we all agree to go home a different way than how we came. That we all go home by different roads than the ones that we came here on. It would be a symbol of being changed by what happens here in church. And that would be important because if, if, if the comfort and the challenges that the Christian faith brings, if they begin to stick with us, if we stick with a habit of daily Bible reading, of weekly worship, of engaging in service to others, in giving away more of what has come into our pockets, if we begin to ask questions about our work, the number of hours we're putting in, the value that it's adding to society, if we begin to ask questions about the amount of stuff that we accumulate, how we're spending our free time, if we begin to evaluate what relationships we are in that are life-giving and which ones are not, if we do that, we will be changed. An encounter with the incarnate God, in other words, changes the way you go home, and it changes the way you are at home. Because when we return home, having asked those questions, having been challenged by those behaviors, when we return home, we find that the things that had once been our center no longer have the same power over us that they once did. We find that we have a sense of healthy detachment, a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward people and things and customs. We can enjoy things and people and customs without being attached to them because we've broken the behaviors. We've gone home by a different road. We can return to possessions and to work and to relationships and to worship and to people and actually enjoy them and get meaning from them because they no longer define us. They are no longer our king or our ruler or our lord because we, like the Magi, have a different king, a different ruler, and a different lord that triggers in us actions of joy and generosity. Amen.